God, we are led this morning by your goodness to desire to surrender all. When we think about your grace, we think about how you've displayed your love, we think about your faithfulness throughout the years, over and over and over again when you have come through. We are led to know that if we surrender, if we give you control, Lord, we can trust you. We can trust that you will be a father, a God who will care for us, who will look after us. God, you've proven, you've proven that you're trustworthy. You've proven that you are kind and merciful. And that's why we're drawn to cry out, we surrender, we surrender. God, we know coming in here this morning, we know that trying to live our way is not working. Trying to go at it in our strength, in our wisdom, is leading us down a dead-end road. And so we fall before you. We ask you, help us, Lord. Help us. Help us to know how to live. Lead us to your son, Jesus Christ, who teaches, who shows us what it means to live lives that honor you, that glorify you, that have meaning, value, purpose. God, we submit this morning to your word. We ask that you would use the power of your word to transform our hearts. We want to be changed when we leave here. We want to be made afresh and made anew. So God, would you work in us by the power of your spirit? We humbly submit now to your word, asking you to speak to us. It's in Jesus' name that we worship and pray. Amen. Hey, as you're taking a seat, uh, I want to invite you to take your Bible and just open it to Matthew chapter 5 there, verses 38 to 48 that you've already heard read. Uh, we're, we'll spend our time there this morning, Matthew 5, 38 to 48. Uh, when we hear the word revolutionary, we all probably think of some different things. Partly because the word revolution or revolutionary has a range of meaning, but at its core, most basic definition, something that is revolutionary is something that brings about a radical change. Something that brings about a radical change. Revolution is powerful because it typically breaks the categories of what could even have been conceived of beforehand. Uh, some of you have lived through the revolutionary change from the black and white television to the color television. Uh, you grew up with that little small box with fuzzy black and white images. And then, I don't know, one day, a few 10, 15, 20 years later, you went out and you got yourself a color TV. And I would bet my life that none of you have gone back. And then who could have dreamed that one day you would plug a cord from your TV into the wall and that there would be this thing called the internet that would bring images onto that TV. And then who could dream that one day you could unplug that cord from the wall and that through some invisible force, your TV could start playing things through wireless internet. I mean, my goodness. These are things that have changed our lives, that have revolutionized even the categories that we could have even conceived of. As we've been working through this Sermon on the Mount, this first sermon that Jesus preached in Matthew chapter 5, what we've been seeing is that the citizens of Jesus' kingdom are not of this world. And he calls the citizens of his kingdom to group up into what we call churches that become these communities of light. And here's where Jesus has been driving throughout uh, his Sermon on the Mount. And here's where he's going to most especially emphasize in our passage today, Matthew 5, 38 to 48. That his plan, Jesus' plan, is for his revolutionary beauty to be unleashed in, into the world through his transformed people. That as the people of God come to know more and more what it means to know God as their Father, that it would bring about a revolutionary change in this world. Right? The, the reason that 
going through a revolution is so impactful for us is that some of us can still remember what things were like before. You know, when you've seen the black and white TV, it just makes the color pop that much more. And Jesus is here today to tell us that the environment that you and I find ourselves in, this particular moment in history is the perfect backdrop for his beautiful revolution. Guys, we live in a time and place in which outrage is normal. Polarization is expected. Cynicism and bitterness are the norm. And Jesus is leading us towards something more beautiful, more revolutionary. Scott Sauls, pastor, author, Scott Sauls, has written this concerning our present age. He writes, In our current cultural moment, outrage has become more expected than surprising, more normative than odd, more encouraging than discouraging, more rewarded than rejected. Outrage undergirds each day's breaking news. It is part of the air that we breathe. On some level, we are all engaged in the seemingly ongoing theme of us against them. For the more popular voices among us, this can also be a great way to build a platform, gain followers and fans, and earn some cash. Outrage sells. For our generation, hate has been commodified. It has been turned into an asset. Here's what this means. It is really really easy for us to get drawn into that same kind of outrage. It is really, really easy for us to be drawn in to cynicism and bitterness. It is really, really easy for us to slump down into that same old us-against-them mentality. But here's what it also means. It means that if this is the world in which you and I find ourselves in, it is the perfect backdrop for the revolutionary beauty of Christ to shine forth. This moment that we find ourselves in, that is full of polarization, that is full of outrage, in which hate has been commodified and turned into an asset, is the perfect opportunity for us to take Jesus seriously, be transformed by him, and then to shoot out into the world to cut through all of the garbage, to cut through all of the trash with something refreshing, with something that satisfies, with something that is beautiful. So this is the opportunity before us today. Here's what, here's the, here's what we're going to be asking. How does Jesus lead us into his revolutionary beauty. How does Jesus lead us into his revolutionary beauty? First, this morning, first, through revolutionary selflessness. Revolutionary selflessness. Let's read verses 38 to 41 again. Here's Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Guys, this world expects that if you are slapped, that you would slap back. This world expects that you would become argumentative, that you would seek to assert yourself, that you would seek to get your way. That that kind of operation is actually an asset in this world. The people who adopt that view are the people who climb the ladder, are the people who become successful, are the people who make something of themselves. And that is what makes this teaching from Jesus so utterly beautiful. Here's the real heart of the matter. Uh, Jesus shares a couple of little illustrations for us, a couple of little s s a series of moments in life. But here's what we have to understand. What Jesus is summing up in these different examples 
is how we are to respond when self is threatened. A slap on the cheek is a threat to my dignity. A stolen cloak is a threat to my possessions. A demanded mile of service is a threat to my time. Jesus is showing us how we are to respond when self is under attack. And see, an eye for an eye is so selfish, right? It says, you got something from me, and because the world revolves around me, I'm going to get something from you. You took my dignity, so I'm going to take your dignity. You took my possessions, so I'm going to take your possessions. You took my time, I'm going to waste yours. But not so with Jesus. Now, we need to be careful. Uh, There's a difference between stoicism and Christian selflessness. Stoicism is this old Greek philosophy that sort of made a comeback in our day. Stoicism is just the idea that when something hard comes into your life, you just grit it out. That you don't show any emotions, you sort of stuff everything down. No matter what happens to you, you just learn to take it. But that's actually not what Jesus is teaching us here in the Sermon on the Mount. So what is Christian selflessness? Christian selflessness is living with Jesus at the center of our universe rather than ourselves at the center of our universe. See, what happens is when we're no longer at the center of our universe, instead Jesus is at the center of our universe, then when self is attacked, we actually don't have to retaliate because our universe is not being attacked. And in fact, if we have been reoriented to revolve around Jesus instead of revolving around ourselves, then we can actually have compassion on other people who are threatening us. Why? Because we know that that person is a human being who's been made in God's image, but who is broken, who is hurting And who what they need more than a slap back on the cheek or more than me to get back at them, more than me to steal their time after they've stolen mine, what they need, they need the love of Christ to wash over their hearts. So instead of being quick to retaliate, quick to defend, we can have compassion. Here's how I see this working. Uh, Maybe you've seen these punching bags, which are uh, sort of hang from the ceiling that you call speed bags. Right? You hit the speed bag and it bounces right back in your face. And the harder you hit that thing, the faster it slaps back in your face. But what would happen if you took that little air needle and you stuck it in the, the punching bag and you took all the air out? You know what would happen? It would be no fun. You could hit that thing as hard as you want to and it, it just wouldn't bounce back at you. It just wouldn't do what it's supposed to do. Why? Because it's been emptied. It's been emptied. The very first thing that Jesus started this whole sermon with in in Matthew 5, verse 3, was this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What was Jesus saying? He was saying when we've been emptied of self, when we stuck the air needle in, and, and self has been released, and now our world revolves around Jesus, we don't slap back anymore when we are slapped. We don't feel the need to get something back when something's been taken from us. We can, because of this newfound humility, we can offer the other cheek. Because of this newfound humility, when the cloak has been taken, we can offer the tunic. Because of this newfound humility, when the first mile has been demanded, rather than being a victim, we can turn around and become an instigator with good. So how do we become this kind of person? How do we become a person who exhibits revolutionary selflessness? There's lots of things we could probably say here, but let's just start with this this morning. We can become, we can get on the road towards becoming a person who exhibits revolutionary selflessness when we commit to the daily worship of Jesus. That every day when we wake up and we thank Jesus 
We rejoice in Jesus. We make a plan to hear from Jesus, to sing his praises, to meditate on all of his wonderful perfections. When he becomes more and more and more the center of our universe, then we become less and less and less interested in ourself. That as he becomes the center of who we are, we respond totally different. Right? The answer to revolutionary selflessness is not stoicism. It is the worship of Jesus. Second this morning. Second. How does Jesus lead us into revolutionary beauty? Through revolutionary generosity. Through revolutionary generosity. Verse 42 says this. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Revolutionary generosity is generosity that is measured by the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that through His poverty you might become rich. Guys, we were beggars. We had no righteousness of our own. We had no right to eternal life. If we had earned anything in this life, we had earned death. And so the just thing that God should have done, the way he should have responded to us, would have been righteous condemnation. But look what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, look, 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 look. You know the grace of Jesus? You know the grace of Jesus, that though he was rich, he was the richest of all. That for your sake, you who had nothing, you who brought nothing to the table, you who had no righteousness, you who had no right to eternal life, he became poor so that through his poverty, you might become rich. The measure of Christian generosity, the the measure of revolutionary generosity is the grace of of Jesus. Uh, just like it's typical in this world for you to slap back if you've been slapped first, here's what's also typical in this world. It is typical to measure our giving according to justice. According to justice. Here's how this works out. We are encouraged by this world to give, but, but, We are encouraged to give in order to get something in return. We are encouraged to give when there's some sort of incentive, some sort of kickback. We are encouraged to give, but we are encouraged to give to people and to organizations who deserve it. And we are encouraged to give, but many times the reason that we give is so that we can tell ourselves and tell others that we are a good person. And probably the most distinguishing characteristic of worldly giving is this. We're encouraged to give, but we're encouraged to give out of surplus rather than out of sacrifice. And that's what makes this generosity that Jesus calls us to so revolutionary. It's not based on the principle of justice. It's based on the principle of grace. Look at what he says. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. We can't help but be startled by that. We can't help but immediately jump and start to qualify what Jesus is saying. We can't help but immediately Try to say, well, is that that exactly what he's saying? Does he really mean that? Is that exactly how that works? Why do we do that? Why do we jump to try to defend what Jesus has said? It's because it is so different than what this world tells us. It is so radically different than how we are encouraged to give according to this world. So this world does tell us to give, but it tells us to qualify our giving. This world tells us to put limits based on if people deserve it if they've earned it, if we can afford it. But that's not what Jesus is saying to us. Why? 
Why? Why? Why? Why? We are to remember. We are to remember that we were poor beggars. That we brought nothing. We had nothing. We could do nothing. That we were in desperate need. And how did God respond? He gave us nothing short of His own Son. And God's message this morning, the word from Jesus, is that the new rule, the new measure of our giving is not the principle of justice that is so basic, that is so ordinary, that is so easy, but it is the principle of grace. So how do we become this kind of person? How do we become a person who exhibits revolutionary generosity? Well, again, we could probably talk about a lot of different things, but here's just one thing I've been thinking about this week. One way that we could come to display this kind of generosity would be to constantly remember the fatherly heart of God. That you and I have all of our needs provided for by the Father in heaven. That the one who is calling us to give generously is also the one who has given to us generously. That as we give out, he supplies our needs. And that as he supplies our needs, he's supplying them so that we can be a blessing to others. Most of the time in my life, I can draw a line from my stinginess, my unwillingness, my lack of compassion for others. I can draw a line to the lie that I am the one who's responsible for taking care of my own life. But if I were to actually believe way deep down in my heart that there's a Father in heaven who cares for me, who has promised to give me everything I need, then my heart softens, my hands open, and I can give in a revolutionary way that is based on the principle of grace and not on the principle of justice. Third, this morning, how does Jesus lead us in his revolutionary beauty? Third, through revolutionary love. Revolutionary love, verses 43 to 46. Let's read that. You have heard that it was said... You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? There is nothing so dignifying and beautiful as true love. In 2006, there was a school shooting in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. It was a a man who went into an Amish, a small Amish school, and shot 10 young children, killing five little girls. He then took his own life and left behind his wife and three children. But the world was taken by surprise by how this Amish community responded. Uh, In an NPR article that I read this week, uh, here's a quote that sort of sums up their response. It says, I think the most powerful demonstration of the depth of Amish forgiveness was when members of the Amish community went to the killer's burial service at the cemetery. Several families... Amish families who had buried their own daughters just the day before were in attendance and they hugged the widow and hugged other members of the killer's family. This has led author Colin Hansen to ask this question. How could the Amish community in Pennsylvania donate money to the widow and the three children of the school shooter who killed five of their young girls in 2006. Now, Colin Hansen, he's asking this as a rhetorical question. What's his point? His point is this. This kind of love is not of this world. This is not normal. This is revolutionary. And this is the kind of love that Jesus calls his disciples to exhibit, which can only happen when we are motivated by God's great love for us. Guys, it's normal. It's easy to love people who love us back. 
but to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, that is from the Father in heaven. Now in verse 45, I think it's very helpful to understand what Jesus is talking about. Notice, notice if you have your Bible there, notice in verse 45, that when Jesus calls us to love like our Father in heaven loves, He doesn't erase the categories of good and evil, just and unjust. Look at what Jesus says. He says, For He, talking about the Father, makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So here's what Jesus isn't saying. Jesus isn't saying that revolutionary love is equal to the modern cry for tolerance. Jesus isn't saying that when God displays his fatherly heart of love, what it means is that God all of a sudden becomes a universalist. What does that mean? Where he just closes his blind eyes to sin and says, everybody's coming on into heaven. That's not what Jesus says. He very clearly holds the distinction between good and evil, just and unjust. Why? Because it is only because those categories of good and evil exist that when God sends rain on both, it is seen as an act of benevolence and not an act of entitlement. When God shines his sun down on the just and the unjust, when God allows good people to enter in and have good marriages, when God allows people to raise kids and have a family and enjoy life and go to Disney World and do all these wonderful things, when God allows people to enjoy all these things in life, we're seeing that he's a a God who's benevolent towards sinners. He does good things to his enemies. So what's the point? The call for us is to show goodwill to people who do not show goodwill to us in return. Notice in verse 46, how, as Jesus continues, he says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Showing goodwill to people who show good, goodwill to us back is normal. There's nothing revolutionary about that. There's nothing outstanding about that. Jesus is saying, hey, if you're showing love to people who love you back, why do you think you deserve a trophy? There's a uh, car dealership at the end of my street. And under their big billboard sign, in big block letters, it says, Winner! And then right underneath it says something like the Herald Chronicler's Reader's Choice Awards. And under that has 10 years posted from 2013 to 2022 saying, what are they saying? They're saying, we won. We won the award. We're everybody's favorite used car dealership. Now, how silly would it be if every single used car dealership in Myrtle Beach had the same exact sign underneath their business? That would defeat the point. The reason they got the award is because they had distinguished themselves in some way. And Jesus is saying, hey, when you and I, when we love people who love us back, there's nothing distinguished about that. There's nothing great about that. That's not a, that doesn't deserve a trophy. That's how everybody acts. But he is inviting us to see that the opportunity for us is to reflect our Heavenly Father who loves those who don't love him back, who shows goodwill to people that don't show it back. What a honor to be able to reflect our Father who, show, who does good and shows his love to sinners. And again, this takes us right back to the gospel. Revolutionary love is shaped by the gospel in Romans 5.8. This is how Paul clearly states this. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then in Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, Paul continues, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when... Not when we were great, not when we had turned the corner, not when we showed that we were interested in him. No, 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 no. The great love which, with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. 
the opportunity that Jesus is placing before us is to reflect not just the heart of the Father, but for our love to have the imprint of how God the Father has saved us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That after having received the love of God for us while we were sinners, we get to turn around and display that same kind of love to others who we feel like are our enemies, people who are against us, people who don't love us in return. So how do we become this kind of a person? How do we become a person who displays revolutionary love? Well, here's the only way. When we have been washed over by the great love of God for us. When His great love for us has truly gotten into our hearts, then we can love our enemies. Then we can pray for those who persecute us. Then we can show goodwill to people who haven't shown it back. Once we have, as we sang about this morning, once we have gone down at the foot of the cross and seen Jesus there bleeding for us, dying for us, taking the wrath of God for us, then from the foot of the cross we get up ready, ready to love, ready for His love to flow through us even to people who don't love us in return. Fourth today, how does Jesus lead us in revolutionary beauty? Through revolutionary hospitality. Revolutionary hospitality. In verse 47, Jesus continues, And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? This world expects people to greet and welcome those who are like them. This world expects us to move towards people who we get along with, who we jive with, as the young people say, who we vibe with. That's ordinary. That's normal. That's obvious. We link up with people that it's easy to link up with. But that's what makes Jesus' call here so different, so beautiful, so world-changing. Pastor Joe Thorne uh, gives us the bi- biblical basis for hospitality, and I want you to see, hopefully by now you've seen the pattern. The ways that we are called to treat others have been shaped and formed by how God has treated us in the gospel. That's the pattern. Here's what Joe Thorne says about biblical hospitality. He says, the biblical concept of hospitality leads us to treat outsiders like insiders because we who were once outsiders ourselves have been welcomed into God's kingdom and made to be insiders. God called us to himself when we were strangers to his promises, and he made us, who were not his people, a people for his own possession. In the gospel, Jesus welcomes not the perfect or the free, but the broken and the burdened, as he has accepted each of us. So we must accept others into our lives. This is a revolutionary kind of hospitality. And I want to aim it in two directions. First, I want to aim it at this church right here, this group of people, our family. What does this mean for us? One of the things it means is this. We ought to show up here every single Sunday seeking to build bridges for people who are new, who are outsiders, who aren't in, seeking to build bridges for them to get into the life of our community. Right? We ought to come with our new people goggles on. That's a weird thing to say. We ought to be on the lookout. Guys, we huddle up and talk to the same people every week about the same boring stuff, about the same boring games, about the same boring thing at the kids' practice. It's so obvious. It's so easy. It's so ordinary. There is nothing in that that takes the power of God. But to say, I'm going to show up here looking to build a bridge for somebody, looking to connect somebody into the life, into life at this church. And I'm going to interrupt this same old boring conversation I've had a million times, and I'm going to go across the room, and I'm going to engage that person, and I'm going to take a risk, and I'm going to open up my life to them. That, guys, that actually takes the power of God. 
That actually takes a real love and a genuine desire that we remember what it was like to be an outsider to God. We remember what it was like to not be in his family and that he came running after us. And so we take that posture towards others. But then here's the other way to think of it, another, another angle on this. That's probably the easier of these two, okay? Here's maybe the, the deeper, more dependent upon the power of God aspect of revolutionary hospitality. That Jesus is calling us to open up our lives to people who are not like us. Amen. Here's why. Jesus says, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? He's saying the call on our life is to show hospitality to people who aren't like us, people who are a little bit uncomfortable for us, people who we wouldn't normally vibe with, team up with, join up with. Christopher Watkin tells a story in his new book that pushes us, I think, towards this aspect of revolutionary hospitality. This is what he writes. When Diana, Princess of Wales, toured a ward of Harlem Hospital in New York City on February 3rd, 1989. The entry in the day's list of official royal engagements would have seemed quite routine. It was anything but. Diana was breaking a social taboo, spending time with AIDS victims at a moment in history when prejudice and misinformation about the disease still abounded. So when Diana was photographed hugging a little boy with AIDS... It was no ordinary photo op. Along with her other hospital visits and campaigning on behalf of AIDS victims over many years, one tour of a Harlem pediatric AIDS ward may well have dispelled more myths about the terrible disease than any public information drive in history. For Princess Diana, it was AIDS victims in the 80s. For Jesus... It was lepers and prostitutes. Who is it for us? Who is it for us? Who is the person that's not like us? Who is the person that votes differently than we do? Who is the person whose moral categories don't align with ours? Revolutionary hospitality opens us up to seeing people as human beings made in the image of God. I don't know where this pushes you, but here's the hard question that Jesus asks in verse 47. Here's a way to think about how we measure this. <laughs> Jesus just slams us. He body slams us. What more are you doing than others? <laughs> we were strangers. We were outsiders. We had no hope, and we were without God in the world, but he came running. He came running after us. He threw his arms around us, and then he asked questions later. And that is the measure of revolutionary hospitality. It leads us to simply ask this question. Do I welcome people into my life in the same way that God has welcomed me into his family through Jesus Christ? Do I welcome people into my life in the same way that God has welcomed me into his family through Jesus Christ. How do we become a person who exhibits this kind of hospitality? Here's what I found in my life. Only, only if we make a plan for it. No one accidentally ends up showing revolutionary hospitality. No one drifts towards opening up their life to people who aren't like them. You know, showing up here and looking for new people, I mean, that, that's important. That's needed. We all need to get out of ourselves a little bit and seek to love and care and invite people into our fellowship. But the deeper 
questions that we ought to be asking are, who do I befriend at work? Which of my neighbors have I gone over and, and talked to? What schools have I chosen to send my kids to? Have I intentionally avoided certain arenas of life just to stay away from those people, those people who vote differently than me, those people who act differently than me, those people who see the world differently than me? Here's what we see as we read through the New Testament, as we read especially through the Gospels. The religious elites of Jesus' day, they kept their distance from those people. And if you read through the Gospels, you see how ugly that is. That there's this facade of religiousness. There's this facade of we're just trying to be up, upright and upstanding citizens in, in our community. But in reality, their hearts are just rotten. And so because their hearts are rotten, they stick their nose up at everybody and they keep 10 feet away from themselves and anybody who thinks anything differently than they do. And then we see Jesus. We see Jesus embracing those very same people. Throwing his arms around the sinners. Throwing his arms around the people who society has put out. Going in and having parties and eating and drinking and befriending people who everyone else had kept their distance from. And guess what, guys? That is beautiful. That is the dignity that Jesus is inviting his disciples into. To, to step away from the easy, obvious, basic, ordinary, mundane, what can be accomplished in the power of man, and to step up into something glorious that takes the power of God that is absolutely nuts to even conceive of that in this world of polarization in this world of outrage in this world where it is so easy to say us against them that we would say yes to Jesus and enjoy a beautiful life where we welcome people in and maybe it gets messy and maybe we make mistakes but at least we're walking out his love at least we're walking out in his compassion, in his hospitality. At least the stamp of the gospel of how God has welcomed us into his family is now being exhibited in our lives as well. Which leads us finally this morning to our fifth and final thing about how Jesus leads us into this revolutionary beauty. Fifth and finally, through revolutionary imitation. Through revolutionary imitation. Jesus ends this Sermon on the Mount, uh, the, excuse me, this section of the Sermon on the Mount with a powerful statement here, sort of a final punch to, to chapter 5. Jesus ends in verse 48 saying, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, initially, that sounds a little outlandish. Perfect, Jesus, what are you talking about? But here's what we step back and realize what Jesus has been leading us through all throughout chapter 5. He's been showing us all the different wonderful characteristics of the perfections of God. He's saying, look at God's perfect love. Look at God's perfect grace. Look at God's perfect kindness. And then he gets to the end and Jesus is saying, you get to reflect that. You are invited in to be like your Father in heaven to resemble His love, to resemble His kindness, to resemble His mercy. Not the stuff that's easy, not the stuff that's obvious, not the eye for an eye, you scratch my back, I scratch yours, you love me, I love you in return, you're good to me, so I'll be good to you. Not that, not the stuff that anybody can do. Jesus is saying, my disciples have the privilege of reflecting God the Father. And that is something this world doesn't know anything about. How do we become a person who exhibits this kind of revolutionary imitation? There's a lot of things we could say. We really already have, right? This is what we've been talking about. This is what the whole sermon is about. If you want to know, this is what the whole sermon was about. Us reflecting God as he has been towards us in the gospel, okay? 
But what is, a, what is an easy first step? What is an important first step in this? Here it is. We need to redefine what the goal of life is. What's the target on the wall? What am I running after? What gets me up out of bed in the morning? When I'm on my way to work, when I'm changing the diaper, when I'm making the dinner, what am I really after? I want you to think for a second back to your uh, childhood. We've all gone through this exercise, right, where uh, a teacher has uh, given you an opportunity. You've got your whole life ahead of you, and, and they've given you this opportunity to, to dream a little bit. And, you know, when you're young, it's, it's, it's exciting, you know. When I grow up, I'm going to be a blank. And you get to dream, you know. Oh. You get to fill in the blank. You get to envision your life. You get to imagine who you'll become one day. Well, this is what Jesus is setting before us. He's saying, here's the goal of life. Here is what goes in the blank. Here is the best possible thing you could write in there. It is to be like our Father in heaven. Because I don't know if you know this, but the whole be perfect thing sounds, sounds crazy, sounds outlandish. That is actually the end goal for the Christian. That is where Jesus is taking us. When we pass over into eternity, we will be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. So all Jesus is saying is, hey, if that is God's goal for your life, then you make it your goal for your life. If His target on the wall for you is to reflect Him, if what God the Father wants more than anything is for kids who want to be like their dad, then Jesus is saying, go for it. Make that the aim of your life. It doesn't matter what you, what you do. It doesn't matter what job you have. It doesn't matter who you marry. Ah, we get all mixed up in that stuff. If we would start with the most important thing, to be like our dad, to reflect the image of our father, those things would fall into place. So this is the deal. We know, you and I know, we know that author, Pastor Scott Sauls is right. That this world that we live in has centered in on outrage, that anger, that hate, that polarization, that us against them is the norm. That's easy. That's basic. That's typical. That's how everybody acts. So two things. First, if you are tired of that, if you are weary of that, if you are ready for something different, Jesus invites you this morning. Come, come, come. I am a savior of sinners. I'm the one who came down from heaven. I was the one who was rich, who became poor. I laid down my life, not just so that you could get out of hell, not so that you could have your sins forgiven. I laid down my life for you that you might have a dignified story, that your life might mean something, that the goal of your life might be radically changed as we submit to Jesus, as we come up underneath his lordship, as we put our trust in him, as we surrender everything to Jesus, he will renew us. He will make us different. Wonderful. And then if that's not enough, you know, if, if, if a more humane life is not enough, if just this amazing target on the wall that is so much better than anything we've heard from this world, if that's not enough, Jesus is also showing us today that what the world needs more than anything is to see the beauty of Christ in us. God wants to use us, us, to shine his light into this dark world. God wants to use us to bring people out of darkness, out of ignorance, out of slavery, into the dignity of being children of God. He wants to use us. Unbelievable. So, where do we go from here? I'll tell you about my life. 
almost all the regrets that I have in my life can be pointed at me trying to make me the center of my universe. How many people I've hurt. How many times I sold myself short because I was clinging to me. Jesus is inviting us this morning into the honor, the dignity, the refreshment of having Him at the center and of having God as our Father. And that will change the world. Let's pray. Lord, even if we do have a great desire, even if we do have all the willingness in the world to imitate you, reflect you in our lives, we know this morning that we are desperate for your power. We cannot do this without your grace. We're so thankful that you've shown us your heart in the gospel, that you have come after us when we were rebels against you. You have sent your own son to die for us when we were sinners. God, we're so thankful and we ask this morning that you would press the shape of the gospel, press the grace of the gospel down onto our lives. Lord, that we might know how to reflect you in this world, that you might do something amazing through us. That as you transform our hearts, your beauty might draw others in to glorify our Father who's in heaven. Lord, we need your grace. We need your power. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.